Writer's Block! Big Two, proudly presented by Inatech, Business Software Solutions. Your cure for the Mondays since 1999, Inatech. <laughs> I am Robin Grant, screenwriter, Ringo award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Banjax, and now Suicide Jockeys. The other voice in the dark, the man on the box to the left is... David Avalone, uh, film guy, comic book writer, and coffee achiever. Love it. If you missed any of our previous conversations, uh, episodes featuring comic luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fraction, Stan Sakai, Kevin Eastman, and many more, our entire catalog can be celebrated via YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and other purveyors of worthwhile ear crack. So double on back and check it out. Uh, great show uh, uh, for you today. Star-studded show. Uh, but let's get a couple of plugs in uh, uh, before we start. Avalone, go ahead. Uh, what do I got to plug? Uh, Elvira meets Vincent Price. Still in st issue one, there might be a copy left at your LCS. Issue two probably comes out first week in September. Uh, it's Elvira meets Vincent Price. If that, if you need more explanation than that, you're probably not interested in the comic. Oh look, Ryland has a signed copy. I have my signed copy where you uh, you command me not to sell this on eBay. Um, so as if I would, uh, uh, this is a prized possession. It's right there. I actually dug up, uh, I, I was flipping through stuff yesterday and I dug my, uh, my copy of, um, uh, drawing blood signed by you and Eastman. So I have the, uh, I have the set. Nice. Um, yeah. And so, uh, on my end, um, uh, suicide jockeys, my, uh, my kick you in the teeth. Uh, I use that phrase a lot, but tokusatsu romp, uh, drops, uh, a week from today. Uh, uh, in your local comic shop via Source Point Press. Uh, in a nutshell, it is kind of uh, uh, um, uh, Fast and the Furious meets Voltron uh, with an extra dollop of heart and soul. It is uh, uh, bonkers, kind of uh, uh, howling at the moon fun. Uh, it is the most fun I've had making a book. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, first review um, dropped yesterday. It was a five-star rave. Uh, uh, they got it. They loved it. You will too. Go check it out. But uh, let's bring the guests on. And our guests today are Joe Duffy and Philip Kennedy Johnson. Hello. I love your howdy, overstuffed howdy. bookshelf behind you, Joe. That looks very much like my overstuffed bookshelf. <laughs> it is behind what you. it is. It is yeah, my life yeah. back there. It is, it is how, yeah. That's actually, that particular bookshelf is just my dad's Pulp Fiction writings from the Oh, man, that's amazing. 80s, yeah. We had Rodney Barnes on, and he was talking about how, like, just how symmetrical everything was on mine, and he was getting, like, big-time, like, Patrick Bateman serial killer vibes from me, so I think, um, I think, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, 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 so so I think you guys are in the clear on that. Uh, You're surprisingly uh, orderly. Uh, <laughs> so we, as we usually like to let people introduce themselves, Joe, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Hi, y'all. Um, I'm Joe Duffy. I've also been credited as Mary Joe Duffy, but I prefer Joe. Mary Joe was what my parents called me when I was a kid, and I love it, but only from my family. Um, I saw it last night on your first issue of Star Wars. The first one says Mary Joe, and then the next one I think is Joe. That, a lot of my early professional work had Mary in it because people were so excited. We finally got a girl writing superheroes. But you can't tell by that name, so we better fix it for her. Um, anyway, I'm very lucky. I've had a, I have had and am having a beautiful career. 
I love comic books and I've written for Marvel, for DC, for Image, for Aria Press. I've written for a bunch of small presses, including um, a couple of issues of a comic I myself created and published called Nest Robber. Uh, work I've done has included the English language edition of Akira. I have written Star Wars, um, Catwoman, I'm spacing out on my own career, Fallen <laughs> Angels, uh, Power Man and Iron Fist, all of which I've loved. There are many others I'm going to be kicking myself later for having forgotten. That's okay. And They'll I, come up over the next hour and a half, I'm sure. And I have edited um, ElfQuest when Marvel was briefly publishing reprints of it, Dreadstar, Grew the Wanderer, Electra Assassin, um, just a whole bunch of great stuff by wonderful people I love and I'm proud to have been associated with. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> Joe. And uh, Philip? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, I My career started at Boom Studios with books like Last Sons of America, uh, Warlords of Appalachia. My first licensed stories were Adventure Time, uh, a Kong story called Gods of Skull Island. Um, gosh, what else? Uh, Planet of the Apes. And then I started working with... Uh, DC and Marvel, and I did an Aquaman annual that was well received. And then these days, I'm doing the action comics on um, ongoing uh, with Superman. And say I wrote the Superman title as well for a bit. Now I am doing Alien at Marvel and Extreme Carnage, which is also still coming out. Um, let's see, I did Marvel Zombies Resurrection, which is really fun. And yeah, some things I can't announce just yet, but it's been it's been very good to me so far. That's Congratulations. Great. Thank you so much, Joe. And it's an honor to meet you, by the way. Like you're the uh, star likewise. of this panel for sure. Always a pleasure to meet fellow writer or a fellow comics lover. So yeah. glad to meet all you guys. Thank you. Yeah, last night I went into my short boxes because I don't have room for long boxes. And uh, I was surprised. I had forgotten how many issues of Star Wars you had written. I was like, well, let me grab like from 90 on. That's got to be it. And like, no, 70 actually. Yes. And when I took out issue 70, my wife said that was the first Star Wars comic I bought. Wow. This, wow, wow, this wow. This Stenax Shuffle. I actually remember the title. But yeah, great, great fun stuff. And, you know, one of the the topic I wanted to start with you guys, uh, you know, Ryland and I have had interesting comic book careers, but they have not really included the big two. I did uncredited but nicely compensated Eastman hired me to put some dialogue on a Conan story. Wow. Uh, oh, cool. uh, the Conan number one that the, the giant size one that just came out would have been nice to have my name on it, but it was one of those things where like the editors were like, what we're going to have to go through to get him approved on something he's already written and we're publishing, <laughs> you know, from the Conan estate and all those people, we don't want to do that. Uh, so uh, that was a pity, but it was nice to be, you know, to be writing a Marvel book for the first time. Um, so the the question I wanted to start with is working for the big two. You like, how did you end up there, and what was it like? And uh, Philip, I'll let you start off. Um, I got noticed at DC first, and it was honestly I think it was because of the artist I was with. They. Uh, I see the Justice League editor at the time, Brian Cunningham, was already aware of Matthew Dow Smith's work. He had done a lot of work on Doctor Who and X-Files and various other things. Um, his his style has changed a lot. He used to 
like these days he he works digitally back then he was doing a lot of stuff traditionally and the style was more like a a more um how do i describe it there, there are a lot of elements of mignola in his work mm. but uh, just a little more uh whimsical and not quite so so not harsh but i don't know just different and um he's retained some of those like angular qualities as he's gone digital but um brian liked his work and followed it and he he read last sons of america which is my first published work and he dug it and reached out and was like hey would you want to do stuff at dc i'm like well yeah <laughs> I, would, I would love that um it's funny that's I'm, I'm actually i i'm working with brian now on uh on a uh a wuxia comic for more oh that's amazing well yeah, please yeah, yeah. said hey he was yeah, he was my guy. foot in the door man yeah he's a great guy and he's, yeah. he's done a lot he was a wizard before and he's, he's done a lot of cool stuff yeah um so yeah, we saw him. I said, "Hey, we—that's how I got in over there." And he, so he was doing the Justice League books and also some of the, like some other characters that are either associated with Justice League, or just other, you know, other uh, characters that are unaffiliated in the in either the, the Metropolis group or the Gotham group or, right. you know. So he's like, "Well, who do you, like? Who of these would you be interested in trying out?" And he was like, I, "I'm doing." See, I've got Aquaman, Green Lantern, Flash, Hellblazer, somebody else. And I was like, Hellblazer all day. <laughs> I've, I've, I've read every word that, that Constantine's ever spoken in a, in a book, ever. Um, and in the end, he was like, actually, what I really need is an Aquaman inventory. <laughs> and, and I was like, that is like I love Aquaman, Aquaman too. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, I told him, I was like, I love Aquaman. I was like, it's, you know, I was like, whoop, it's like total lie. And didn't, didn't know shit about Aquaman. But um, I, mean, I did like Aquaman a lot as a kid. But as far as like where, where he's at now, yeah, I didn't, yeah. I didn't really know where he's at anymore. So I had to do a lot of research into Aquaman. And um, so I mean, finish. you got it. Yeah, he's, I'm all over. It. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, my memories of him were, were very like super frenzy, very old school kind of like that's that's how I remember Aquaman. It was the old school stuff, and I did love him as a kid. I thought he was he was rad, but I was not caught up. So I um, I got caught up in where he's at now, and actually legit fell in love with him again. Um, that was pretty cool. So I did write that inventory, and that was really fun. Um, and that led to me being in the writer's workshop and studying with Scott Snyder. Um, which introduced me, got on the radar of other editors in in house there, and um, yeah, it's worked out really well. Around that same time, um, the Marvel editors, there's a guy uh, Ricky Purton at Marvel who kind of brings in new talent. He 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 noticed Warlords of Appalachia, another boom book that I had done, um, and also the artist that was on it, Jonas or Jonas, excuse me, he's German, Jonas Scharf. Um, and brought us in through that book, and he was constantly slinging it at editors in in house. He was putting that book on everyone's desk, like read this, read this, read this. So as they started looking for more people to work with, <laughs> there was at some point they were they wanted to do these 80th anniversary um, tribute books, like to these old Marvel titles that are no longer around, like some of the, the spooky ones and other things. And one of them was War as Hell. Um, and they were like, I read that book in the 70s. Yeah, I never had. I'd heard of it, but I, yeah. I knew of it, but I'd never read the original. But um, for those viewers or listeners who don't know, I'm I'm active duty army, and Ricky knew that. And Ricky's like, we got a soldier that we should bring in to write this this short story. So they're like, you want to do this? Like, so we we've got a 20, 20 or twenty two page book, War as Hell. The other half is going to be shaken. Do you want to do the other one? I was like, 
I mean, I guess I, I didn't want to, I kind of didn't want my name thrown in there with shake and he's going to crush me, but I, but let's do this. Um, and I did. And that, that was really fun too. We worked with, uh, Rob, sorry, um, Nick, not Rob Lowe, but Nick Lowe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, very um, different. On, yeah. Very different. Yeah. Very different kind of editor. And, uh, yeah, Nick was awesome. And, uh, that's how I got on the, on the, the map at Marvel was that war is hell story. Did a little 10 pager. I mean, Howard Shaken has got this, <laughs> Encycl encycl encyclopedic knowledge of music and yes. and of and that's my whole thing like in the army i play i'm a military musician so he and i actually became friends and his story is about glenn miller and i used to play in a glenn miller band wow. uh, so we, we had a, fi a fun conversation about that it's about it's about you know the death of glenn miller during world war ii oh cool. um and mine was about uh this guy that i had known whose job was, he was a ranger in Afghanistan. His job was to go out on these night raids and kill bad guys in their sleep. Uh, like, you know, it's kicking indoors and doing these night raids. Very, two very different stories. Yeah, and no, yeah. I, if, um, but I'm very proud of it. And um, it was a story I wanted to tell. It's kind of, it treats PTSD as a, like a mythological creature that passes on from person to person that passes through blood as somebody is killed. And, um, I like that. Yeah. Thank you. I'm very proud of that story. I mean, this is a little short you know, guy. It's one of the things that I, I'm a big Jack Kirby fan, and I think that his, a lot of his characters, his characters, not his and Stan's characters, haven't been that well handled by other people. And I did kind of love that uh, I've always seen Darkseid as half metaphorical. Mm. And the fact that Tom King used him as a metaphor for depression and PTSD, I was like, I think that's actually kind of where Jack was on Darkseid. Darkseid isn't just Darth Vader's grandpa. He's, you know, he's a much more interesting. He literally is a mythological figure and mythological figures are supposed to stand for something. Yeah, no, I totally agree. PTSD and depression is, I thought, was, you know, a very smart idea. Joe, not Mary Joe. <laughs> how did you, how did you end up at Marvel and how did you rise over there um boy very very different experience from phillips i could tell you but it was 40 years earlier you know way back in the late 70s i was a comics fan i loved comic books my older brother maliki loved comic books before me and since i was an annoying little sister of course anything he had that i didn't i had to get into and i was like whoa He's really onto something here. <laughs> so the day came when I did something he never did. I got really mad at his story and I wrote a letter. And they, <laughs> <laughs> they published it. I love I letter column origin stories, by the way. I think Busick is a letter column guy back in the day, Kurt. You oh, know, yeah. the number of creators, I think Wade is one of those guys who like starts out writing angry letters to Superman or whatever. Was, almost the only way you could get in before the internet when the, yeah. the comics market was shrinking. We were falling off a flipping cliff. The direct market had barely begun. People thought it was a novelty. But anyway, I wrote a letter. They published it. I was like, oh, well, that's easy. Let me write a letter about a comic book I loved instead of the one I got mad at. So letter, letter, letter. Little did I know, the guys in the office keep track of these letters, and uh, Len Wein was like, oh, she wrote in again, and, you know, 
Steve Gerber was like, well, she writes really, really well, but I wish she knew what she was talking about, which he actually said to me the first time we met. Oh, wow. But I couldn't make the bridge. I didn't know how to make the bridge. And then, okay, I had a contact I did not even know about. A friend of a sort of honorary godmother of mine worked with Stan. And Stan didn't know me and hadn't seen my work, but Stan knew he liked his friend who liked his friend, who liked my mother, who liked me. And on the strength of those <laughs> connections, Stan went to Archie Goodwin, who was running Marvel at the time. It was the year Archie was editor in chief and said, she seems like a nice kid. I hear she's good. She obviously loves Mar Marvel. Meet her and see if she's got it. And Archie had me in. I took a proofreading test. Oh, the poor man. I gave him a novella I'd written because I hadn't written comics because those days nobody knew what the format was or how you scripted them. So no, I nobody knows what the format is now. So well, good with that. that part hasn't changed actually. <laughs> they decided they couldn't use me because uh, something happened on the staff. Roger Slifer was kinged and jumped over Scott Edelman who was advanced laterally to become a knight on the board, something. Suddenly there was no longer a job. But three months later, Archie needed a proofreader. And he's like, I know a proofreader. And bless him, he called me in. And once I was in the office, there was just no stopping me. Every time somebody needed something, uh, you need coffee made? Sure, I'll make the coffee. Oh, you need five pages scripted overnight because the regular writer crapped out? I could do that. And... uh I was returning artwork to the uh, to the artists and writers. Who, writers got pages in those days, and I was so everybody who wrote or drew a comic book knew me because I was the girl who was giving them back their pages and making them, you know, acknowledge Marvel owns the content and these original pages can be yours, all yours. So I got to know everybody, and they were all the greatest people in the world. And I kept saying, I'll do it, I'll do it. You need a script, I'll do it, I'll try that. I, I literally did, I would make coffee, I would return artwork, I would run errands. Uh, Carmine Infantino once yelled at me for being late delivering something from the writer to him, and he didn't know I was the writer. He thought I was just some secretary. And he yelled at me and told me all these things the writer <clears throat> had supposedly told him and how I, I was really messing up their workflow. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Here, Car Carmine, here's what you need. It's an honor to meet you. May I never do so again, though I yeah. still love your work. I've heard that about Carmine. What what book was that on? Uh, that was the only time Carmine and I ever worked together, I'm sorry to say, was Star Wars. But I was Archie's assistant editor when Archie was writing Star Wars. Right. So I did a lot of the proofreading and trafficking on that and just loved it. And even the fact that he grouched at me and totally made up my shortcomings out of whole cloth doesn't change the fact that sure. I worship and adore Carmine. In fact, I pretty much worship and adore all of the great Silver Age creators I had the privilege of meeting and knowing and working with. But I feel that way about the Bronze, Bronze Age people and the whatever the current age is. I love you. I love everybody. So, uh, but I had to fight like crazy to get in. But as a result, I got in when most of the greatest people on the planet were still working for Marvel. And then I got recruited to DC 
because there is nothing Marvel or DC like better in this whole world than stealing talent who is already working sure. for the other. So once <laughs> you're in, it's easy to get the next job, but oh my gosh, that first job, holy maracas. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I forgot feel... to mention I wrote Wolverine earlier. <laughs> that was one of my tryout stories that I did his book. So I should have remembered considering how much I love him. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's my story. Yeah, that's an amazing story. I mean, I feel like that, uh, the say yes to everything, that a variation of that works pretty much anywhere in show business. And it doesn't mean it always works. You also need luck and talent. Luck and talent. And you can't Absolutely luck without talent doesn't get you much and talent without luck is is yeah. is sadness is not paying your rent <laughs> um, so it's uh but that drive and that ability to say yeah sure i'll you know i'll i'll do whatever is necessary uh you know my i my brother-in-law was a vice president at universal for a while and he people would ask him how did you get there and he would say well i got a job when i moved to california i got a job xeroxing scripts for universal and then when a job opened up as a script reader, I tried out for it. I was writing coverage in my spare time and blah, blah. And then up the ladder to vice president. And he said that no one ever asked him, how do I get that job Xeroxing scripts? They always asked him, how do I get a job as a script reader and writer uh, as, a, as a coverage writer? And he would say, you've missed the point of this story. The question is, how do I get the job Xeroxing the scripts? Like, it's not, you can't jump over a step just because you want to. You know, and people do, you know, I, with comic books, I was very lucky. Someone, a colleague read a script of mine and recommended me to Joe Ryband to write something for Dynamite. And I had drinks with Joe and we talked about things and we hit it off. And that's entirely where it came from. But that was, there's another 30 years in show business doing <laughs> before that. And, you know, I was, I, I met um, Quesada at a party once in 2000, 2001 around then, 2001. And he, and we talked for an hour and he said, would you ever be interested in writing comic books? And I said, sure, that sounds great. But I wasn't up on what Marvel was doing at the time. And sort of like how you said John Constantine and they said, great, do Aquaman. <laughs> they were like, what are you most interested in? And I said, Nick Fury. And they were like, wow, that's not an answer we get a lot. And <laughs> no, <laughs> Garth Ennis is writing Nick Fury right now and driving it into the ground. Uh, so how's, uh, how's Howard the Duck sound? Yeah, nobody but Steve Gerber ever can, will, or should write Howard the Duck. There's a lot. And to by the said. way, that's what happened to that movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow, that movie that needs, um needs more Steve Gerber. That, that that approach will work time and time again. I mean, the um, you know, my my day job, I I write uh, movies and and TV shows, and um, you know, I spent. I spent two and a half years at the American Film Institute Conservatory uh, as a directing fellow. It's supposed to be, you know, best place in the world to study directing. But like my, I didn't learn half as much there as I learned. Um, I was basically next to Oliver Stone while he was prepping any given Sunday. Wow. Um, and I wasn't, you know, I mean, I wasn't some, you know, I wasn't some guy that was high up on the chain or anything like that. I was just, uh, I was there kind of doing what you're talking about. I mean, I was, I started out as one of like six interns. And, you know, we all showed up and the other interns were sitting in a corner reading or twiddling their thumbs or trying to find an excuse to go out and go to Burger King or something like that. But like you, 
<clears throat> I was like, I'm here to make movies. You know what I'm saying? Oh, you need that script copied. Oh, you need somebody to run out and get this drink. You need somebody to do this. You need somebody to do that. And then, um, and I did that for a couple of months. And then Oliver comes back from vacation and it's time to prep any given Sunday. Um, and, uh, and you know, they need, it's all hands on deck and they need people to take on more responsibility. And I had been earning my stripes for a good couple of months. And so, you know, so when Al Pacino came in and Oliver was, you know, an hour behind, uh, uh, like he always is, and somebody has to take care of Al Pacino for an hour, you know, they don't ask one of the idiot interns who are sitting in the uh, uh, in the corner. It's like, hey, you know, hey, Ryland, hey, 18 year old Ryland Graham, <laughs> go sit with Al Pacino for an hour. Uh, 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 we need you to take LL Cool J into the conference room and shoot baskets with him and watch Sports Center. Um, uh, uh, Oliver is going to have a, um, a, uh, a meeting with the cinematographer and they're, they're going to discuss the entire look of the film. They're, they're going to spend six hours figuring out how to shoot football in a very dynamic way because it has always been, uh, uh, done poorly. Um, and you know, again, I'm there, I'm a fly on the wall. I'm there to get coffee or, 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 or make, you know, or make copies or, or whatever, you know, to, uh, to run over and pull this person in, but I was there. Uh, and I was only there getting a first class education and how to shoot like, uh, you know, what, what many think is like a brilliant Hollywood film uh, because of my hustle, because I was willing to kind of get down in the mud and eat shit for a little while. You know, I, I didn't care. I was there to learn. I was I was all in while I was while I was there. Um, I might as well be working. And, and if I'm working, I might as well be working very hard. Uh, and I might as well be happy and agreeable and, and, and people might as well, you know, know that, that I'm on their side and I'm somebody they can count on. And I think that, um, I think if you do that, no matter where you do that, it will pay off. People will notice, you know, and it, it may take a little too long for them to notice, but they will notice. Um, and, and I've seen that time and time, time again, that it sort of pays dividends. You know, if you, if you, if you, if you hang out, uh, uh, you make yourself useful. Um, people will start to use you, <laughs> you know, I mean, not, not in a bad way. That sounds bad, but you know, pe uh, uh, you know, people will, will put you in the game, you know, yeah. and that's what happened to you. And that's very much what happened to me. And, and so, so, so yeah, I mean, th there are a lot of creators that watch this and, and, and a lot of people, you know, they, they, they watch this because we bring people like, you know, Joe and Philip on to, to, to give advice. They want little nuggets like this. So if you take anything away from this episode, it is this, you know, like, you know, hang around, work hard. They will put you in the game. Right. An expression I cannot begin to cite the source because I've known it for years and I heard it from several people long ago. The trouble with opportunity is it usually comes disguised as hard work. <laughs> that's really great. You know, I like that. That's really great. And 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 again, if you <clears throat> if it's what you want to do. You know, there there are moments. Yeah, I remember when I was working on my first film. Uh, I was sort of an intern electrician on a very very low budget movie shot in New York, and it's backbreaking work. And it is that moment where you go, so this is the rest of your life. These fourteen hour <laughs> days and this sleeplessness. Like, are you good? Are you good with that? You know, uh, David Lean. I think it's David Lean. Someone asked him once. And it's kind of a horrible question to ask a director. What's the difference between making a great movie and making a bad movie? And he said, well, when you're making a great movie, you have to wake up really, really early in the morning. And when you're making a terrible movie, you have to wake up really, really early in the morning. And that's the difference as I have noticed it between those two experiences. <laughs> it's like, it's, 
no one sets out to make a, great, a terrible movie. We, we're all trying hard. We're all, you know, doing the most that we can. But that thing of being available to people and, you know, Joe, it's still written all over you. Having the enthusiasm for the art form and for the people who do it, holy shit, does that go a long way? <laughs> you know, it, you know, it's like, it's funny that you started off with a negative. What was the comic book you were mad at? It was the Incredible Hulk uh, where they wrapped up the Warlock saga and they had a, a really, really thrown away BS crucifixion scene in it. And it's like, I didn't mind that it looked like they were killing Warlock or that it was a crucifixion. I minded that it was all so perfunctory and it looked like they were just, let's do this symbol, let's do this symbol, let's kill this guy. And I was like, look, I don't mind crucifixions. They they just did one in Green Lantern. I thought it was awesome, but you guys totally threw it away. So you started with you know was negative, but it was sophisticated story analysis. You were you were basically telling them they had thrown away a good storytelling opportunity. So that that's actually was what I was saying. But I think it was just it was probably the best spelled letter they got that month. You don't know. It can be that simple. <laughs> It is. There, there is a lot to be said for that. That's amazing. Yeah, because I'm sure they were also getting a lot of letters that were like, "I cannot parse this in the English language. I don't know what these words. I don't know what these words were supposed to be. I don't know what this chicken scratch and says." Letters cut from magazines and, and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, that like, that, yeah. Uh, that proud tradition continues in Twitter. Oh yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I was just talking to a friend about that. Of. As much as I love the look, social media is how I know Joe Duffy. I I know Joe. I can't remember if it was Jim Chadwick or Howard Chaikin, but we've talked to each other on threads on one of their pages, or I, maybe both. Maybe both. Probably both, actually. And that's where <clears throat> that's where we know each other from. Without social media, I would not have met Joe Duffy. So that's great. But I miss the days when the negative troll fans, literally, that was just that one shitty letter that Starlog would publish to prove that, look, we'll publish, you know, whatever you say, even if it's something shitty. Uh, like, now that one letter is 100,000 people on Twitter. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and they still, and it's still a microscopic, I mean, if 100,000 people is even an exaggeration, it's so much fewer than that. Um, you know, or the one guy who really smells bad at the booth at a convention that you kind of edge <laughs> away from. Like, those guys were literally toxic. Um, there's something about that kind of negativity and bad hygiene that seemed to go hand in hand in comic book fans. But, you know, but on the plus side, now we also <clears throat> hear directly from all of the fans and all of the people that like the work. And that's, you know, it's... The positive is also not reduced to seven letters in the back of a comic book. It's a hundred thousand, you know, texts and letters and notifications. I, you know, I do these t this book for Dynamite. I've been doing uh, Elvira comics for years, three years. And when I took it on, I was a little like, I really don't want to do this if it's like, if the audience is like creepy middle-aged men who are getting off on what she looks like and all that. And honestly... Whenever I have a new comic out, I go on Instagram and I click on the hashtag Elvira and it's all young women. Yes, young women. 
By the way, I wrote Elvira back when her comic book first started 30 years ago. That's right. You wrote A House of Mystery, right? Uh, no, Elvira, when Claypool was publishing. Oh, with Claypool. Okay. And I um, we had that in common. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, I love Elvira because she's funny. She looks like a bombshell, but she's completely empowered. And young mm -hmm. women respond to that. They don't oh, see absolutely. her as objectification. They see her as a role model. Yeah, as goals, as they say. Yeah. No, and that, like, I, I've often said that if I was if I was looking at that hashtag on Instagram and seeing nothing but, like, 60-year-old guys going, oh, she's so hot, I would be like, I got to bow out of this man. I can't face myself if that's what... Matter of fact, the, possibly my favorite negative review ever, the second trade paperback of Betty Page, he didn't come out and say it. But if you read between the lines of this guy's angry review, it's that basically he couldn't jerk off to it. Oh! And I was like, well, good. <laughs> like I, I wasn't actually reaching for that or trying for that uh, artistic pinnacle of achievement. So he was like, I kind of like the, the single page pinups are nice, but there's this whole like story and who cares about that? And I was just like, Oh, good Lord. Okay. Buy a Betty Page pinup book. Don't buy a exactly. narrative starring Betty Page. Exactly. This is a story, so things are going to happen that actually involve plot and story and things like that. So oh, there yeah. was uh, there was something Philip said that, that you know, I, I, I thought was very interesting. I mean, we were kind of on this topic of, of, you know, I mean, how do you what is the road to the big two, right? I mean, I, I think creators watching this are, are, are really interested. They like to hear these stories. Um, and I think there's something important in your story, Philip, where, you know, you you brought something to the table, you know? Like they were, they were you know, they're uh, this example of they're doing this war story. Oh, we have a soldier here, right? You know, there's, <laughs> right. There's, there, there's this whole other life that you're leading, right? And, and, and whenever I'm... I mean, I, uh, uh, Avalonia and I just did a, a big um, uh, panel for the Los Angeles Film School, and I, 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 I like to do those as much as I can, talk to, you know, uh, film students coming up and whatnot. And, um, and you know, they're always asking, well, you know, wh you know wh what should I be doing? And my, my, you know, my advice to them is always, like, study something else. You know what I'm saying? Like you can you can learn you can learn to write from a book. You know what I'm saying? You can uh, uh, you you learn to make movies by just making movies, right? But 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 what are you going to write about? Like what yeah. is your life experience? What are you what are you bringing to the table? Um, you know, uh, uh, Tom King. You know, uh, uh, his story is not dissimilar to yours. He actually he was a CIA agent. <laughs> you know, he worked for the CIA. Um, his first book was a uh, you know was a um, was a story that kind of plugged right into that, right? Um, right. And and that made him very interesting. He brought a level of expertise to the table. Um, uh, he had something to talk about, like a body of of experience, and it's um. I mean, something that I've done in my, my writing career, the, the, the script that, that really broke me most recently was a, it was a story of a, a Russian-Armenian gang war in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, I mean, that's, I, I, I'm not a, a Russian or Armenian gang member, right? Uh, uh, I, I, <laughs> that's, that, that is not my, my experience. And so I, if I was going to tell that story, I had to do something about it. And so I actually went into the world. You know, I had, I, I had a friend who could introduce me to an Armenian bookie 
And then that Armenian book, bookie, uh, uh, you know, introduced me to these guys who ran a contraband house. And then this guy introduced me to that guy. And it was a couple of months of basically like living with these these people in this world, right? And and sitting in the coffee shop and listening to how they talk and and watching how they play cards and 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 what's what's important in this world and what isn't. And 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 so I had lived in that world for for long enough to make this story seem very authentic and very interesting, right? I brought a body of experience to this story. And so when people read it, it was like, it didn't read as something that I had Googled, right? It was something I had lived. Um, uh, and that was very interesting. I mean, I remember doing a story about a, um, a uh, you know, I, I had to do a story about a bail enforcement agent. Um, and so, uh, you know, I did some ride-alongs. I, uh, not only that, I actually enrolled in classes um, and and I, I, I went through the process of actually, uh, I, I didn't actually end up getting my license, but I went, I got all of my prerequisites. I took all of the classes. I, I went through all of the training in order to be a licensed bail enforcement agent in the state of California. <laughs> and Damn, so, dude. yeah. Awesome. It, it, yeah. And so if you can bring that sort of experience to the table, it really turns the tide. And then, and then just those anecdotes, you know what I'm saying? Like when you're, when you're sitting in an office at Warner brothers and they're like, okay, well, how are you? going to write about, you know, uh, whatever, you know, um, somebody at, at JPL who's like studying meteors or something like that. Well, I'm, I'm actually going to go there. I'm actually going to do this. I'm going to do this. This is what I've done in my past. You know, I'm saying I'm going to bring this body of experience, uh, this knowledge, this this thing. So so that is a very long-winded and meandering uh, uh, rant here. But but I think that's interesting. It's like, what makes you unique? What do you bring to the table? What other, you know, sort of body of experience do you have? What makes you stand out? Because literally everyone who, you know, everyone who's applying for a job at Marvel is like, well, I've written these comics and 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 I took this writing class and I did this writing, 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 writing. But everybody has that to a to a certain degree. We we, we all have crossed some sort of threshold, right? If we're if we're kind of in the mix for these things, but what is going to set you apart? And, and you had this thing, and I think that's really interesting. Thanks. Yeah, I when Joe was speaking about her experiences and then you guys with yours, I realized I'd left out some other crucial parts of my my you know origin story. And I was like, well, here are the books I made. But yeah, before all that, like when you're still trying to actually bust in, like I mean, as David said, like it's not about how do you, you know, how do you get that script reading gig? Like you gotta get the gig before that and the gig before that first. You know, you don't just, you know, now I've arrived and now I can make awesome things. Like you have to you kinda gotta get there. And uh, back when I was my my first my first book, um, Last Sons of America. I mean, I had that for a while before it was actually like out before it was made. I was I was out you know going to conventions and trying to pitch it to, to publishers and editors. I had a couple other books too that were on on this Kindle that I was showing people you know on the show floor and and hanging out at bar cons, meeting the rest of the community. And um, at the time, I was doing a lot of anti-human trafficking work in Baltimore. Um, and that's what that book is about. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a world in which Americans can't have kids anymore. And so around the world, kids become like money, like the richest country in the world needs families, needs, needs children, and everyone else has them. And so these um, adoption agencies, which are really just child retailers, are setting up shop in third world countries, buying, bartering, and stealing kids. And there's almost not, aside from that high concept part that I just described, there's almost nothing in that book that's made up. Right. Um, I, I kind of just uh, brainstormed a lot of that stuff. Well, the, the, the various aspects of that story kind of percolated and came together during the 
earthquake in Haiti in 2010. We just had another one, but there's a there's a big earthquake in around 2010 in Haiti, with, and I, I found out about these um, about a, a mission group from the U.S. who went down there and ostensibly to take to, to find kids who had been orphaned and find them families, but they ended up stealing like smuggling a bunch of kids out of there to oh, to you know yeah anyway, and there was a, it was debatable whether or not they were trying to do good things, but it seemed like it was straight up human trafficking by a, right. a church group. Mm-hmm. Right. And that kind of, it led me down. I mean, I thought I kind of knew it all about human trafficking. Cause I, I was, I'd seen it from the perspective of, you know, sex trafficking that happens in the States and labor trafficking as well. But I didn't know much about the for-profit adoption industry. And I started doing some research on that. It's pretty screwed up. And it's, there's a lot of areas of gray because there, there are families here who need children who, who want kids and can care for them. And other places, there are these families who, can't afford it and they'll just literally sell their kids to to um you know orphanages or whatever and then they just they resell them and it's like this whole industry where they're just making money off of kids and sometimes they have these sob stories about like the ways in which they were orphaned and all that and a lot of times it's not true and they have families back home that just sold them Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah it was just it was a it was a story that was hugely important to me and i'd spent so many hours just on the street, sometimes, you know, in quasi dangerous situations, just learning how this whole thing works, this whole system works and how, you know, the problems that lead to it. Um, and I just, when I was writing that story, when I was re- uh, writing Last Sons, I just, I bled on those pages. I, I really cared deeply about those things that were happening. And um, I feel like that showed, and that was kind of the thing that set it apart from other stories I was doing and, and hopefully set me apart from other writers when they were looking for people to, to, to use. And I, I always try to do this, put a lot of myself in my stories. Warlords too. Warlords of Appalachia was very different. I was more about political divisions happening at that time and, you know, the place I had lived myself. And, but I always try to put a lot of myself in the story whenever possible, even if it's some crazy off the wall thing like, you know, high fantasy or something that I obviously don't have any personal experience. There should always be themes in there that you care about that you can then dress up in comic booky genre ways and, and, and uh, show that you're telling a real story. Well, yeah, here's here, 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 go ahead, David. I was just gonna say, starting from a place of I'm angry about something is kind of gold yeah. <laughs> in terms of like it's very motivating. Uh, there are definitely people who've done it poorly and who get up on a soapbox and you don't see anything but the soapbox. Uh, but yeah, the more sure. personal, and I also I agree with you completely, I don't think you can write the most give someone the most abstract assignment they could possibly ever have, some autobiography is going to end up in there. Mm -hmm. Because even if you haven't been, even if you haven't been, I'll use the example I've been using, even if you haven't been dark side son, you've been somebody's son, you had a childhood, maybe it wasn't an apocalypse, but maybe you didn't like your grammar school very much. Like, you know, there are, there are ways to find your, you know, you 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 may not you know you may not have encountered exactly granny goodness in your life but you've probably met someone who fit that bill in your own personal development a well, bad it, it, teacher yeah. you needed to get free of etc i mean it better be personal or it's worthless and uh, i mean that, that, that that's my experience if there's none of you and and so i mean he, here here's my experience in the film business and and it is thus uh, thus far proven true in the um in the uh, uh the comics business also you know, listening to Philip's story, and, and you know, which is, is is not dissimilar to the stories that that, that I was telling. Um, I mean, I think that often 
you know, often you don't sell your story. You sell the story behind the story. That, that, that is, that is my experience. It's like, you know, when you're, when you're sitting with an exec in Hollywood or an editor in comics, right. You may have a couple of minutes to, to, to pitch something. Right. And, and so if you have the book done, if you can read that Philip has indeed spilled his blood on these pages, it, it'll be there and it'll be obvious. And that's hard to say no to. You'll be able to see that, but not everyone is going to read the script or read the book. Right. Like sometimes they want, you know, sometimes they want you to, it's the elevator pitch or, or whatever. And, if things get boiled down to an elevator pitch or even a normal just Hollywood pitch, you got 15 minutes or something like that, it can sound like a thriller they've seen before or something like that, right? Um, uh, it's the old cliche, there are only five stories, right? And so the, you know, an exec who hears pitches all day, an editor who hears pitches all day, pretty soon they're like, oh yeah, it's that story. It's story number four, right? Uh, uh, if you don't do enough. But, right, um, if you can sit down and you talk to them for that couple of minutes about your experience. Hey, yeah, I went down and I talked to these people. I went into this world. I got to know these people. This is what I saw. This is how it affected me. Um, uh, uh, you start to tell them not what happens in the book, right? But, 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 but what the book is actually about. What's behind the book? What is the emotional center of the book? What are the themes of the book? And they they really perk up. They really start to respond to that. So I've you know I mean I've had that. You know when I was a young writer in Hollywood, I would go in and I would pitch my take, and I see kind of eyes glaze over. Um, and uh, and then you know an exec, maybe just because they're bored, asks a pointed question. Well, where did this thing come from? And then I go off on a fifteen minute tangent about where I came up with this plot point and why I came up with this plot point. Oh well, you know, I actually went to this place and I talked to this guy, and he was really interesting, and and he showed me this, and 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 then their mind is blown, and that leads to five more, you know, questions, and they're interested in this world. They're like, this world is amazing. Like that is, uh, um, you know, we want that. Give us that. We will buy that. Um, you know, and I feel like if you don't, if you don't have that, you know, if there's nothing behind the story you're telling, then again, like you need to find that, right? Um, uh, but that's what really makes a story great. And I think that when we are presenting our, 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 our stories to editors, to, to producers, to whatever, I mean, you need to, you need to tell them what happens, but you also need to tell them what's behind what happens. Right. And, and, and why this is interesting and why this is different. I mean, it's certainly, um, I mean, you know, the, the, the thing that I'm working on most recently is, you know, the, the jump, it's an astral projection thriller. And it's, you know, it's kind of like a 70s paranoid thriller, but it's set in the world of astral projection. And again, I didn't, I didn't Google astral projection. I didn't be like, oh, well, that would be cool. Let me do some Googling and, and figure it out. This came about because, I mean, I did an interesting thing. I, 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 Fabio Elvez, who's the artist on Bad Jacks, and, and he, um, I don't have Bad Jacks line around here, but um, yeah, I do. Um, but he's, you know, he's, he is a very, very talented artist. And he was, you know, nominated for a Ringo Award for his, his work on Bad Jacks. And, um, and I had a hold of him. He was asking me what was next and I didn't want to lose him. And so I needed to come up with something. Um, I had three, four five things in the holster that I could have given to Fabio. Right. But I think that the best thing you can do for an artist and, and, and actually for yourself with creator own stuff is to ask the artist, like, okay, what do you want to draw? Right. I can tell you, Hey, let's, you know, let's do something with tanks or, or, or whatever, but in your wildest dreams, you know, what do you want to be drawing? And usually when you ask an artist that, there's hemming and hawing. They're like, oh, I don't know, dragons would be cool, I guess, whatever, blah, 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 blah. But 
But Fabio had this thing in the holster, and it was clear that he had it in the holster for like years. He's like, "You're oh, you're asking me astral projection," and it wasn't because he thought it was cool. It was because for ten years Fabio has been an active astral projector. Um, uh, he actually does this stuff, and there is this like this vociferous online community of astral projection junkies. They all get together and they all compare notes and they trade stories and they help each other through and they're mentors and gurus and the whole nine yards. And he starts telling me about this world, right? And it's like, it's like this, yeah, this is awesome. Bring me into this world. And Fabio took me by the hand and brought me into this world and introduced me to all these people. And so the, you know, he didn't have a story for me. He didn't have, it wasn't like, hey, let's do this. It was like, it was come into this world with me. Let me show you around and you figure out what the story was. And, you know, eventually, I mean, I, I write thrillers for a living, so I found a way to write a thriller in this world. But, but the world, the, you know, every character in this book I've actually met when one way or another. And of course, there are twists and turns and amalgamations and all that stuff. But like, but the book is so much more interesting because there is this story. And so I'm in the process now of actually presenting this to you know to publishers. I, I did a Kickstarter for the you know for the first two issues, and that went over well, whatever. But I'm now taking it the traditional publishing route. And that's what I'm finding is that if I if I'm just like oh thriller set in a world of astral projection that's fine and they're interested but but they can find that anywhere but when I start to tell them the Fabio story Fabio's done this for ten years Fabio in- introduced me to to dozens of people who have done this for decades and the book is about that uh, uh, they get really excited and really interested and 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 so I you know I, I it's it's a there's an interesting discussion here in terms of like okay well well where do ideas come from and and what makes what really infuses an idea with energy and life uh, and, and love. And then how do we then present our ideas to, to publishers? And, and, and we only have so much room, we only have so much time. So like, what do we include and what do we leave out? And, and this is all interesting stuff, you know? Yep. I mean, it, before we got on, Joe was telling us about an old karate <laughs> injury. Uh, and what book were you writing when you were taking karate? I was writing Power Man and Iron Fist. Right. I, got into it because I loved both the characters and I was a martial arts fan as in Bruce Lee, Chuck Norris, Jackie Chan, crazy about him. But I felt like if I was going to be writing somebody who really lived in this world, I needed to get better at my martial arts. I'd done self-defense, I'd done some judo and jujitsu, but I decided to step it up a level and uh, study karate and karate didn't work out at all well for me because uh, I picked a bad dojo. I didn't know it. They, uh, I was also <laughs> studying dance, and my dance studio was subletting one night a week to a karate school. And I was like, oh, well, same building. The people here were great. Nuh-uh. Um, in a matter of months, I had broken and dislocated my left knee. But you know what? That was the end of my martial arts career and my dance career, which was always just for fun. But I am so good at writing people with injuries. I can write a suffering like no business. And uh, I also, nobody can ever tell me anything about how hard the martial arts is and how many people who think they're pretty good never get to an Iron Fist level, let alone a Jackie Chan, a Chuck Norris, uh, uh, a Chow Yun Fat, a... Oh, I'm spacing out on the good names. You know who I mean, Romeo. Deadly. Deadly. But uh, I felt like I could not, I couldn't become black to write Luke Cage, but I could spend a lot of time in Times Square. 
I tried to become a martial artist to write Iron Fist and it didn't work out so well for me, but I learned a lot about what goes wrong and sure. what can be toxic in that world. So it was really helpful. It's funny you said Times Square. I was just talking to my wife about this because I, I did a podcast where I, where I also invoked Times Square in the 50s as like a certain kind of place with a certain kind of language and whatever. I was like, you use Times Square today people are not talking about the Times Square you're talking about. No, you're talking about the Disney about. store. Yeah, no. and it's like, no, 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 no. Times Square, when I was a kid, was Escape from New York. Like, that movie was not science fiction. That was a accurate representation of New York in the mid-'80s, disguised as a science fiction movie. Or The Warriors is another one. It's like- Yes, yeah, absolutely. That was, that was that just how the ape, that was, you, you watched that movie and went, yep, that's how I feel when I'm midtown. <laughs> that's how it feels to try and get to Coney Island from Midtown. Absolutely, it's a friggin' violent odyssey of fear and tension, uh, just like in this movie. So it is interesting, though, that you, you know, again, you can you can tell. I always say that you know I do a lot of period stuff, and I insist on being pretty accurate to period uh, whenever possible. And I always feel like. Even if people don't know why it feels wrong, they know it feels wrong. Like even people who aren't experts on whatever for there are indicators to them that something is, there are even subconscious indicators that something feels right and that something feels wrong. And a lot of people won't have that reaction, but I think it's, it's worth it. And it's also, I mean, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about it's more than just Googling, but doing your research and doing your homework and doing not just the physical homework of, you know, as you guys have talked about, going into communities and meeting the people from them, but also knowing the history, knowing the, you know, I, I wrote an issue of Betty Page where I wanted her to say, do what now in 1953? And I literally went on fe Facebook and went, I need someone with a relative over 60 years old from Nashville <laughs> to tell me if white girl said, do what now in 1953? And was that necessary? No, it was not necessary at all. But uh, made me feel better. Did my, my my grandpa Lil my says he you know my my grandma Lil says that she used to say it all the time. Great. Now I Ooh. now I feel better about it. And it's also I mean on top of everything else, forget what it does for you as a writer. What it does for you as a human being to have a rounded set of interests and. When I went to college, I, I studied film at Bard, and I absolutely expected that what I would mostly do with the rest of my time at Bard would be literature, theater, sculpture, arts. Turned out what I did was uh, epistemology and science history, because I took a class with a really great professor who said some really interesting things and had a perspective on the world I hadn't heard before. And when it was over, he invited me to take the next class that he was teaching. And I went, yeah, I'll do that. And uh, that turned into six classes on epistemology and the philosophy of science and all that kind of thing. And hmm. holy shit has that informed my work. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of scientists in my comics, not just because scientists are great stock characters, but because I have this guy to draw on uh, and the way he made me see history and culture and how it's all interconnected and even how I research. He had this great thing and it's such a great thing for writers um, about 
when you look at a scientific moment, a scientific discovery, what else was going on? Like before Steve Martin wrote Picasso at the Lavoie Agile, I had a science professor who said, you can't separate Picasso from atomic theory. Like that way, cubism, the way of looking at the world that Picasso exemplifies is grows out of the worldview of a world starting to understand the universe on an atomic level and on a subatomic level. That lets you see a human face that way. That lets like you that. see the world that way. And uh, he has his, I recommend this book. It's his crazy giant book because Google can't quite do this for you. It's called The Timetable of History. I always use it for research. And it basically lays out all of human history in like trivial pursuit categories. This is what was going on in daily life that was what happening in the arts. And so like you can make these connections of like, oh, Beethoven premiered this symphony and this guy was writing this novel and this had just been invented. And that, so like, you don't just get the sense of, you know, it's what people were talking about. It's what was in the air. It's what, what book they were all reading that month that your story takes place. And the thing I always say about research, I am an evangelist for research, is more often than not, it hands you your story on a silver fucking yeah. platter. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. you can I like sit the concept there and of that struggle book. about like what there's the great scene in Barton Fink where he's been given the studio executive job. The studio executive is given the job of writing a wrestling picture, and he's talking to John Goodman. And I think John Goodman even says, you know, I used to do a little wrestling. And the screenwriter completely talks over him and asks him no questions and is not interested in anything he has to say. And it's, you know, I could tell you stories. It's like, of course you could. And that's the point. And he's like, no, but ask him to tell one of the stories about wrestling. And the guy is literally blocked writing the wrestling picture. And he's in a room with a wrestler. And it does not occur to him to say, you know, give, 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 give it all to me. It's going to be in a movie now, <laughs> you know? And, uh, it's the that people ignore the gift of that of go out and look for the story in the world and in how things really work and in how things really happen is really something you know yeah but living I, your life is an important part of this gig too for sure and, and you know and look there are people who <laughs> there's a famous filmmaker I bag on too much who literally just remixes old VHSs and makes very popular academy award winning critically acclaimed movies, and I don't think he's done anything but remix everything everyone's done before. Uh, there are people who like that, and it's because they just want their movies to be assemblages of other movies because that's very comfortable. That's It's comfort food to be inundated with tropes in a sort of fun new way also works for some people. But I think it's way more interesting to go, what about this is uniquely me? What about this is uniquely my perspective and my human experience rather than just i saw this neat scene in a movie once and i'm going to put it in my comic book i'm going to put it in my movie i'm going to put it in my novel uh it's the remix of i always say it's the difference between george lucas putting the burning homestead from a western in his space science fiction movie and quentin tarantino taking the briefing the rough and tumble commando scenes from dirty dozen and putting it in a World War II commando movie. <laughs> it's like, to me, that's slightly less of a 
worthwhile thing to do. It's like that hasn't been recontextualized at all, except now there's a little more cursing and Brad Pitt will never be Lee Marvin, no matter how hard you try. <laughs> so, but I, I, I want to ask Joe a question just to get back to you talking about Archie Goodwin and uh, you mentioned Dreadstar and there's some of my favorite comics. So you were in on the beginnings of Epic. Uh, not entirely. Oh, Neither okay. Archie nor I was at the very beginning of Epic. Epic was begun as a reaction to heavy metal. And right, the magazine. Richard right. I'm Marshall. actually talking about Epic, the, the comic book line, which starts with Dreadstar. Do I get to tell you about wrestling oh. or not here, David? Oh, no, tell me about the wrestling. Yeah. Um, no, so what happened is Rick Marshall started Epic for Marvel as a reaction to heavy metal. And it, for a bunch of reasons that I'm not entirely privy to and I'm not comfortable talking about the ones I am privy to, Fair. it didn't work out. So Archie was brought in to take over from Rick and kept it going for a year but was completely over his head. So as of the fifth issue, which was two years into Marvel trying to do its own version of heavy metal, I came on board. And what Archie and I did that hadn't been happening before is Marvel has got the best writers and artists on the planet. Why aren't we using them as well as the, the incredibly artistic Tony metal or people? We want both. So we, we got ourselves Jim Starlin. We got ourselves, uh, you know, just wonderful people like that. And we had Sergio Aragones, and I believe he had begun grew elsewhere. And Jim had done some of his Metamorphosis Odyssey, which is what he was calling it, at Eclipse. But Archie and Jim Shooter and I pretty much simultaneously, I can't tell you which one came first because it was like the same week, said to Starlin and to Sergio, we will publish as much as you want to do. If you want to give us enough material that it'll turn into its own comic book, that's fine. We'll spin Epic off into a comics imprint and do a monthly, bi-monthly, quarterly comic book just for Dreadstar slash just for Gru if you would like us to. And that was the origin of Epic Comics. Uh, I didn't realize that it only had five issues within the first two years. No, it was five issues the first year. Okay. But there was a year of not getting a single issue out where right. material was being commissioned and somehow the magazine was not coming together and being released. So the first year it was a quarterly and it did well enough that they decided the second year it would be bi-monthly. And that was the point where Archie was like, uh, help, please. I liked when Joe worked for me before. Can Joe please come work for me again? Which was incredibly nice of Archie and a great opportunity. And we had a wonderful time and yeah. launched a great comics line. Oh, and, and that I remember that period very, 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 very well. This is another, I always evangelize also for the fact that when people talk about the revolution in the 80s, they always talk about Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen. And to me, that's not, they're tangential to what was happening at Eclipse and at first and at Epic. And the way that Epic, the magazine co-opted the, the heavy metal style but still, like, I remember, didn't Mobius do a Galactus story in there? Yes. I feel like they even used, you know, like, some of the flagship characters and all that. Oh. And we, look, we loved Metal Orlant. 
we loved everything that was being published by the the great graphic novel collectors collections in France. We mm -hmm. we were happy to use any of those creators we can get. I also, and you could see it in Epic, I was evangelizing like crazy to get some of the great manga cartoonists and anime mm -hmm. artists into Epic and via Epic into the United States. So yeah, we wanted to use the incredible Marvel people, but yeah, we wanted Dave Sim to do us a story. We wanted Wendy and Richard Peeney to do us a story. Anybody whose work we liked anywhere in the world, if we could get them, we hired them and we published them. And best part was being epic, unless it was a Marvel character, they owned the rights. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I it's funny how much you're not, when you're just a fan and when you're young, how much you're not tuned in to the realities of the situation at all. Like, I absolutely did not notice a year-long gap in the publishing of Epic Magazine. I loved it. I was a fan of it. I picked it up whenever I could. No, there wasn't a gap. The gap was front-loaded. Oh, the I see. year, nothing came out. Right, I see. It, it came out a year later than it was expected to, and only four issues the first year. So when I'm talking about two issues, I mean from when it should have started coming out to when I came on board was two years, but there were only four issues without me. Oh, okay. That's and funny. I've also got to jump in and say about Watchmen and about uh, Dark Knight, Frank, unbelievable creator. He worked for Epic. He's a friend. He and I have been working together since the first day he walked into Marvel. Um, I think the world of Alan and of Dave tremendously, but they were later. The, the, the stuff with the graphic novels and Epic Illustrated was about five years before mm -hmm. The Dark Knight Returns or, um, or Watchmen. They right. did extraordinary work there, but a lot of the breaking ground of things besides straight superhero comics laid the groundwork for what they did with Dark Knight and what they did with, um, with, I keep Watchmen. spacing on Watchmen. I'm so yeah. sorry, Alan. Yeah, right. You know no, I like I, it, but I'm, I completely but, agree. I mean, you've got Starlin, Death of we, Captain we, Marvel. You got the Star Slammer. groundwork for them, and everybody's like, oh, this stuff. It's like, no. Archie and Walter did uh, Manhunter back in the 1970s. That helped right. lay the groundwork. Frank did Ronan for DC before he did Dark Knight. Right. You know, people forget there, there was all of this other stuff. And Alan and Dave were not creating Watchmen. They were trying to use all the old Charlton characters like Captain Adam. And uh, then yeah. it's like, no, guess what? You can own this. We will reframe it as original creations. There's enough time we can change everything. So they... They are giants, but frankly, part of how they became gigantic was they were standing on the shoulders. Oh, absolutely. Of and that, that's all I was saying is just that, like, that revolution tends to be narrowed down to these two DC projects that were in the middle of an ongoing revolution that a lot of amazing people had contributed to before. But they had star power and a boatload of marquee value. I just okay. want to say I agree with you, but I have to say it without in any way disparaging the accomplishments of my friends because their accomplishments are monumental. Oh. oh, absolutely. Those were monumental comics, and I remember reading them when they were new and being blown away by them. But to me, I always remember them as part of a continuity. Like I was also 
blown away by American Flag that month. Oh my gosh. I was yeah. also blown away by De Dread Star or whatever chapter of Metamorphosis Odyssey we were up to that month. You know, it was all part of, uh, you know, one of my favorite comics from that period is Aztec Ace. No one remembers Aztec Ace. Doug Mensch, amazing comic, you know, that's 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 fallen out off of people's radar and so influential, I think, uh, in a, in quiet ways. You know, and, you know, my friend Kevin was out there creating uh, the Ninja Turtles. And the Ninja Turtles are very much influenced by Frank's work before Dark Knight. Absolutely. You know, all of all of his, you know, the, the Ronin and the... Yeah, Ronin and also the uh, the Daredevil stuff and all of that. I mean, I think that the funniest thing about the Ninja Turtles is that it's Kevin is interested in satirizing Marvel and Daredevil and Frank Miller, and uh, Peter is more interested in Chris Claremont and the X Men. And it's one of those like rare moments where you can boil a par an artistic partnership down that Kevin writes. Uh, Ninja Turtles on the drawing and Peter writes Teenage, Teenage Mutant, Mutant over it. <laughs> it's like, it's so clear who's interested in what. Like mm. he's doing Frank Miller, Chris Claremont. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, that, is, that has always cracked me up. And again, I think it goes back to everything we're saying. The, the way in which we do all stand on the shoulders of giants and we do acknowledge what has come before and we try to build on it you know, and in no way, you know, disparaging the work that people have done before, especially such, you know, spectacular world changing work as that. I mean, I've heard an argument and I think it's a good one that Miller's version of Batman is so indelible that people have made the mistake of writing Batman as though he's an angry 65 year old man when he's supposed to be a 35 year old man at the height of his strength and powers. It's like, no, Frank was writing a very specific Batman, <laughs> you know, he's writing angry. Am I retired Batman? You shouldn't write him like that when he's thirty-two. Like that's not that's not really who he is. But anyway, super superhero talk. We should probably start to wrap up. I've kept you kept you kids for a while now, but thank you so much for satisfying me, Joe. I I, I hadn't realized how integral you were to the the whole epic thing. I'm sure if I went to my boxes and looked at title pages, I would probably eventually work that out. I'm one of the best kept secrets in a lot of the major successes of that time, to tell you the truth. I say this without blame to anybody, but the fact is I was below radar on a lot of it, just in there trying to help, but I will not let the story be told that I wasn't there. Well, 20-something-year-old me reading your Star Wars issues absolutely noticed the change of writers the quality of your work, how oh, great it was and how indelible. And you were writing Star Wars when literally no one else, you were the only person making Star Wars for a good three years. Yes, I was. And by the way, whatever they say now, at the time it was considered canon. George Lucas oh, yeah, and yeah. his staff watched everything I did with a careful eye to that. Mm -hmm. And I love Star Wars. That's why I was doing it. And I am incredibly proud of that work. And every Star Wars movie that's been done since George Lucas surrendered the reins, I like it. But to me, there's always a, I would have liked to see what was really supposed to happen. Mm, yeah. And no, I get that. Some of them are so wonderful. 
but they're not what George Lucas would have done, and that will always be my gold standard. Sure. And if not George Lucas, me. <laughs> I I agree completely. I was reading them last, some of them last night, rereading over them because uh, it had been a while since I'd looked at them, and just like uh, so many indelible, so much great world building in there, and great a great. The direction you take the characters after the wrap-up of Return of the Jedi is such a great, interesting, fun. Uh, you were great on those books. Uh, I'd put Walt as a close set second to your work. Simonson did amazing Star Wars work, I thought. Um, With David Michelinie. It was Walt and David yes, together. That's right. That's right. And I love David. I loved what Archie and Carmine did. I, yeah. I pretty much like everything that was done in that first 107 issues of the Marvel run. I think most I, of us were doing it because we loved Star Wars, and I think mm -hmm. that comes through. Oh, absolutely. It absolutely does. And even, like, you know, Carmine's art looks nothing like the movies, really, but it's so beautifully... It's such a beautiful style, and it is what it is. And even as a kid, even as a 13-year-old reading them, there was something about Carmine's style hearkening back to a... It looked like these comics were made in the 1930s you know, in the period that George was sort of trying to bring back the adventures of Robin Hood and the, and the serials and all that. And the fact that the Carmine stuff had a kind of art deco feel to it. And I just, you know, I loved that too. I loved when, you know, when Simonson takes over drawing and you're like, oh, okay, now things look like they look in the movies, <laughs> you know, now that now everyone's on model. Now the ships look like the ships and the guns look like the guns, but what Carmine did was so beautifully of a piece uh, in and of itself. I think it has great value, you know, and Archie's writing on it was terrific. Oh, Ar you don't get a better writing than Archie Goodwin. He could always make me cry or he could make me laugh till I cried. Always. Yeah. yeah no, great loss. Well, let us, we usually like to wrap up with where, where is everyone and where can people find you on the net? Joe, you said you have a book you're working on right now. I do, but I'm not quite ready to talk about it. Okay. Um, watch, watch me on Facebook. I'm, I tell everything on Facebook sooner or later, but uh, I, you know, right now I do four words for Marvel. I do this for this person, that for that person. Not nearly as much work as I'd like, but I am working on my own stuff. And uh, also, before I sign out, I want to say what a pleasure it was to meet Ryland and Philip, and I hope we stay in touch. This has been a blast. Thank you. I love that, too. I have a lot of your work, too, Joe, and it's an honor to meet you, and I look Thank forward you. to seeing what comes out from you next. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. I can't wait to, to hear it. And so people can find you on Facebook, primarily. I, Facebook right now is the easy place to find me. I uh I am almost at my friend limit, but never I never quite go up 5,000. And you can always just follow me. I'm full of blather, but uh, if there are any upcoming announcements about my career, they'll start there and then probably go to Amazon. Great. Thank you. And Philip, what have you got next? Um, you can find me. Well, let's see. My work is coming out next. I've, I've got, I'm doing Action Comics Monthly. I'm doing Alien Monthly. Um, another... Another book I can't talk about yet, but it's super exciting, and I'm stoked to talk about it with an artist, just just a maniacal talent. Um, can't wait to talk about all that. Um, I have a story coming out in Red Sonia, Black, White, and Red. I, last I heard, I think it's come out in the October issue. 
Um, I have an issue in the Gotham City Villains uh, that comes out in November also. Batman and Superman. What, what, villain, what villain is it? Rachel Ghoul. Right. right. Yeah, I am a big fan of the Al Ghouls. I think Talia has been <laughs> been unfortunately maligned and has taken put on, set on a path she was never meant to be on, according to Denny O'Neill. And I'm going to try to write the slowly, slowly write the ship. You know? you're, do, you're doing the Lord's work, or Denny O'Neill's case, maybe. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 you're I, I doing the really Hefe's work. Yeah, the Hefe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was gonna say the Algools are really fun at parties, so yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. And actually, there's a the Algools have a very important role in my issue of Batman, Superman, and the Authority that also comes out in November. Nice. Um, yeah, if anyone wants to find my work, I I usually I'm pretty up to date on my social media stuff. You can find me at philipkennedyjohnson.com. I'm on Twitter at Philip K Johnson. Facebook under my full name. Um, Instagram. I probably should get Instagram more, but you know we're all busy. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Philip Philip underscore Kennedy underscore Johnson at uh, Instagram. Nice. And Ryland, where can the kids uh, find you? Well, I mean, I, just first, I'm, I'm, I'm worried that Philip doesn't work enough. I can, can <laughs> if, if we have editors and, and, and publishers listening out there, I'm sure we do just get this guy some work. Uh, <laughs> he's down on his luck a little bit with this nice. stuff. Uh, I, I think he can help it. Uh, I am at uh, Ryland Grant on all forms of social media. That's R-Y-L-E-N-D-G-R-A-N-T. I uh, always spell it because it's not a real name. Uh, my parents drunkenly arranged letters and saddled me with it. So now I have to spell it for you. Uh, but yeah, um, my books, the uh, Ringo award-winning Aberrant and the four-time Ringo-nominated Banjax are available in fine comic shops everywhere and on Amazon and Comixology. Uh, my uh, Kickstarter ditties, uh, The Jump, which I was talking about earlier, my Astral Projection Thriller, and my Fargo-esque crime drama, The Peacekeepers, uh, are available right now via Backerkit. If you go to thejump2.backerkit.com, that's the jump one word and the number two, uh, you'll find those there, uh, as well as a bunch of signed copies of Aberrant and Banjax and Raccoon variants and all that stuff. It's kind of a one-stop Ryland Grant shop. So if you're looking for something uh, something fun, uh, go there. Um, my latest and greatest, my tokusatsu joint, uh, Suicide Jockeys, uh, drops a week from today as you are watching this on August 25th. Uh, issue number one drops uh, in comic shops. It's out via SourcePoint Press. Um, uh, go down to your comic shop. Tell me you want it every month. It's going to be a fun ride. So uh, come take it with us. Avalone, you're muted again, dude. Avalone, you're muted. I have Elvira <laughs> meets Vincent Price coming for the next three to five to however many they decide they like. Dynamite tends to contract me for four, and then one comes out and sells well, and they're like, how about five? And then two sells well, and I get the can you make it eight email? And that's a wonderful thing that I shouldn't complain about, but it is tricky planning <laughs> when uh, planning your narrative arcs, when you have to keep tacking things on. I've gotten very good at writing epilogues. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so those are coming. There's another Elvira Kickstarter coming in the fall. Uh, there will be more drawing blood from me and Eastman watch this space. And uh, everything else is in that same, I can't uh, talk about it, vein right now. Oh, and uh, The Shape of Elvira uh, trade paperback dropped last week. Um, that is what ex sort of exactly what it sounds like. It is a satire of The Shape of Water starring Elvira, who gets cast in a uh, art house romance where she's paired with a gill man. 
<laughs> and of course, uh, anyone who knows how these things work knows, of course, it's a real gill man. It's not an actor in a suit. And uh, hijinks ensue. It probably has more Muppet movie references than the average comic book right now. Um, wow. But give that a look. And in the meantime, you can find me at davidavalonefreelance.com, which branches off to all of the social medias and things. Thank you so much, Joe. It was a real honor having you on. Philip, great to see you again. You guys and, too. Uh, we'll do it again soon. Thank you. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on the Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.